We are nearing the end of this great letter to 1 Timothy. We are in the final chapter, chapter 6 today. I think there's about two, two or three more sermons left. And I'll probably do a few Christmas sermons and build up as we consider Christmas and the incarnation of Christ. And then the new year, probably considering a few Psalms. And then when all the students are back, we'll probably look at Proverbs. Uh, which I think many students need uh, a lot of wisdom, but also um, all of us need wisdom, God's wisdom. That's Lord willing for next year. But today we're going to just look at verse 1 and 2. And today is really a a very practical text about our work, how we work. Um, This is in a specific context of a a slave and a master. But but again, we learn much much principles for all our work, no matter what circumstance we are in. So let's read together God's word. And then we'll pray and get dive in. So chapter 6 verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as a bondservant regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you care for all of our lives, not just our Sunday worship services. You care for our Mondays, our Tuesdays, our everyday work life. I pray that this text would convict us if we have perhaps been disobedient in this area of our work, especially in our relationship with our boss and our superiors. But also, Lord, comfort us and give us the strength to obey these verses. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, beloved, the way we work matters to God. It can be the difference between someone seeing the beauty of the gospel and the glory of Christ. Christians try in vain to share the gospel with their words while they have a bad work ethic. If they don't work well, if they don't practice what they preach. The main point of our text is very straightforward. Slaves are to respect their masters, whether saved or not, so that the gospel and God's name will not be ridiculed by the way we work. And even though our modern employee-employer relationship is not the same as a slave-master relationship, there are many parallels to that, and I would say enough of those parallels that we can apply that to that, that context, to that circumstance. Now, before we look at the text, we first need to answer a serious objection against Christianity because of verses like these. The objection sounds like this. It seems that God is okay with slavery. Both in the Old Testament, slavery is not abolished, but only regulated under a theocratic nation. And and here, even for a Christian master, Paul doesn't tell the Christian master to let his slave go, but only that the slave should even work harder for his Christian master. So what's going on here? Many people say, see, I can't believe this old book. It it was pro-slavery and therefore Christianity is false. Well, the first thing we should say to our um, critics in that light is that what we think of slavery and what the slavery was during the Roman Empire, but also in the Old Testament, was completely two different things. When we think of slavery, what do we think? We normally think of kidnapping or man-stealing and then selling people off into slavery. While slavery in the Old Testament and in the Roman Empire was not based on ethnicity, in fact, slaves in this period could prosper in that condition. Many slaves were teachers, doctors, 
lawyers, artists, soldiers, and some slaves even owned other slaves. So, so first we have to say there was a massive world of difference between what we think of slavery and what slavery was here. When it comes to man-stealing or kidnapping, the Bible explicitly condemns that in the same letter, chapter 1. Just turn back to chapter 1, verse, verse 9. The sad thing about expository preaching is by the time we come to the end of the book, we've forgotten what chapter 1 was about, right? But let me remind you, look at what verse 9 to 11 says. Paul is running through the from commandment number 5 to commandment number 9, and he says, um, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and here's the word, enslavers. Enslavers. That's the eighth commandment, which is, you shall not steal. And the worst form of that is to steal another person made in the image of God. That is against, okay, the text goes on and say, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So that, that form of slavery is evil, forbidden, in both the Old and the New Testament. You would have gotten the, the death penalty in the Old Testament for stealing another man and then selling him as a slave. So God himself is against that. Therefore, beloved, we just have to recognize we live 2,000 years apart from this text, and we should not take what we think of slavery and put it back in that context. But there's a second important thing to say. That's the first important thing. Slavery was different. But secondly, the gospel and Christianity was not a revolutionary movement in the sense of changing the society and cultures through violence and force. That's not the way God has planned to change societies and cultures. Christianity and the gospel changes people and cultures from the inside out. From the heart. God wants our hearts, not just forced submission. But that change requires time. It's not a quick fix. So it's no coincidence that as time progressed, wherever Christianity was really functioning well, slavery was abolished. The, the bad form of it, right? When a biblical worldview took, took hold, books like Philemon, is a key book for you to know. Philemon was written to a slave owner and where Paul tells Philemon to, to receive back his runaway slave Onesimus, not as a slave, but as a brother. Galatians 3.28 is another text. It's one of those seeds. It says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ. Masters and slaves don't have a special privilege or advantage with God when it comes to salvation. In God's sight, we are all his children and he has no grandchildren. There's only the children of God in God's eyes, right? So because slavery was different from what we usually think, and because the Bible lays the seeds, the gospel seeds that would eventually blossom into a slavery-free world, we have texts like these in the Bible. Now, let's look at what it says and then seek to apply it to our lives. We'll consider our attitude towards unbelieving masters and then our attitude towards believing masters. So first, consider with me what is to be our attitude towards our unbelieving masters. Now, when I say master, you can supplement master with your lecturer, your supervisor, your boss, or anybody that you are under authority that you have to submit to. So that's how you should think. Now, slavery is still slavery, and that's why Paul describes the condition of these slaves in verse 1. Look at how he describes 
slavery or these, this position of these people in verse 1. It says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants. Being under a yoke is the picture of being in submission under someone else. It usually in our minds have a, a, a picture of oppression, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He actually commands us to take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. To be a Christian is to be under the yoke of Christ, but he is a good master. And that's why we joyfully serve him as his slaves. We are the slaves of Christ. And that's why Paul had no problem to call himself a slave of Christ. Philippians 1 verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants, but literally the Greek says douloi or doulos, slaves of Christ. All Christians must see themselves as one another's slaves. In Mark, Mark 10 verse 43, Jesus says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, diakonos, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, doulos. We are all servants and slaves of something or someone. You cannot escape that reality. You will either be a slave of sin and your own desires, your own passions and the devil, or you'll be a slave of Christ and submit under his lordship, his rulership, and experience the freedom and the joy of loving and worshiping him. But yet, even though we are saved, that doesn't change our social circumstances. You have come to Christ and you might still even be a slave of somebody else, an earthly master. Some of your earthly masters might be good. Some of them might be bad. Many, many of you might be in a workplace that feels like a yoke. If you have to do the same mind-numbing set of tasks each day, or if your manager or your boss is unreasonable, unkind, or unjust, or cruel, or if you just simply feel stuck at your work with nowhere to go, I don't think it will be a stretch to call that being under a yoke. But what do you do with that? How do you treat those in authority over you? What is God's counsel for us in the workplace? How should you act towards your supervisor, your lecturer, or your boss? And especially, how should you act towards those who do not deserve your respect? Well, look at this. First, we'll look at the command. Here's the command that Paul gives to slaves in verse 1. It says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. The word honor is now tying this section with the previous section. We, are, we have to honor true widows. We have to honor elders who are laboring and preaching and teaching. And now slaves are to honor their masters. At the very least, honoring means respecting them and having a high regard for them. On a practical level, it means to work hard and not to be lazy, especially when the boss isn't around, to work as if he's standing behind you or she is standing behind you, to still work with that honor in mind, to honor them by doing a good job. Titus 2 colors in the picture for us better. Go to Titus 2 with me, verse 9. So just two pages to the right. Titus 2.9 says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Basically, translation, don't be a pain in the neck 
for those in authority over you. Don't say, well, they don't treat me well. I'm going to not treat them well. They are not worthy of my respect. I'm not going to give them anything. I'm just going to do the bare minimum to get away with things. I'm not going to give anything more. And we often justify that kind of behavior with phrases like this, respect is earned. How can I respect that person if he's unworthy of my respect? Or you reap what you sow. If you want to be a bad boss, you're going to get a bad employee. But did you notice something? Back in chapter 6, 1 Timothy 6, the text gives no qualifications as to whether they deserve it or not. It doesn't say respect and honor them if they are good masters. It just says regard them as worthy of this. And what we see here implicitly, Peter tells us explicitly. Listen to 1 Peter 2.18. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was the seed found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Did you see what Peter says? Not only to the good, but also to the unjust. Be respectful. Even if your boss is bad, you must still do this. This is the Christian way, the impossible way. You see, anybody can love those who love them, even atheists, even pagans. It's not hard to love those who make your life easy. It takes true, miraculous love to love your enemies, just like God loves his enemies and those who hate him. But you might say, how? How is that even possible? You are asking me to do something I cannot do. Well, welcome to the club. You're right. You cannot do this. This is not normal. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to live like this. 1 Peter gives us the best example of how Christ did it and also the secret that empowered him. Did you notice that? At the very end, it says he did not repay evil with evil. That was a kind of honoring. I'm not going to curse back. I'm not going to threaten. But what did he do instead? He continued entrusting himself to him, that's the Father, to who judges justly. That's the key. Christ was free not to retaliate because he believed that no sin will go unpunished. Not one. He knew that vengeance is the Lord's. I will repay, says, says the Lord. He knew that even if men can get away with things, and, and with injustice, they cannot get away with it in the end from God. You too must look to God for justice, for your vengeance, so that you don't have to take vengeance yourself. Vengeance is His. What often causes us to not respect our earthly mass is the sense that, but if I don't stand up for myself, who will? If I don't fight this injustice, then who will? Answer, God will. God, your Father, will in a perfect way. So you look to God the Father as the righteous 
judge. You look to Christ as the perfect example, and you also need to look to the Holy Spirit to fill you. You see, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you need all three of them to do this. Listen to Ephesians 5 verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, that is the debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That last thing, to submit, is the last result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. You will submit under authority. It's a Spirit-filled reality. And you cannot do that alone. You need to first submit to the Holy Spirit to be able to regard your master as worthy of all honor. One last thing to be said here is this, the word regard. Look again at verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1. It says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. That regarding means to think, to treat them like that, even if they are not like that. It's the same word when it says we should count one another more significant than yourself. Now, it's not that we are, some people are more significant, it's you are to treat them more significant. In the same way, treat your master in that position that God has placed him. Here's a beautiful example how that looks like. Uh, 1 Samuel 24, when David was being pursued by Saul, listen to David's attitude in 1 Samuel 24, 5. It says, afterward, David's heart, so when he Remember, Saul came into the cave. He only cut a corner of his robe. And listen to what it says. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Now, I would argue that Saul was no longer worthy to be respected. Would you agree? He is pursuing an innocent man. His innocence going crazy. He's on his way to kill David and David's heart struck him and says, how can I put my hand? Because he is the Lord's anointed. The Lord put him there and the Lord will remove him there in his time. When David confronted Saul after he came out of the cave, listen to, he says the same thing that helped Christ. 1 Samuel 24, 11, See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sensed sin against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Do you see? The very same pattern we saw in Christ. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I will not put my hand against you. I'm trusting God to bring me vengeance. So beloved, learn to view your manager, your boss, your employer as the Lord's anointed. The Lord put him there. Not because they are sinless. Not because God won't or just give them a free pass. But no, See them in that position by God and therefore respect them with all respect. Now, I know there might be a million questions in your mind right now. So let me just give a few clarifications of what I don't mean when I say these things. First, it is not sinful to seek a different job if you have a bad work environment. Okay? 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul says to bondservants, Were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom... Avail yourself of the opportunity. Do you see? So if you're in a situation you cannot change, 
Learn to trust God in it. But if you can find a better job, a better position, go for it. That's what Paul says. It's a simple principle. If you can improve your situation, do it. You should not remain there if you can. But if you, if you have no choice, learn to trust God. It's also okay to be genuinely hurt by what happens to you at work. So to honor your employer does not mean you pretend like what they do doesn't affect you or doesn't hurt you. Or Yet Christ and David shows us what to do with that pain, what to do with the hurt. We take it to God, our judge. We lay it before him. Lord, you've seen. Lord, you've heard. You know, O oh Lord. I trust you. And lastly, last qualification is this. If you have the ability to, in, to address injustice, you should do it. So if you have any means or way to oppose the injustice in a good way, in a legal way, right, to, to correct a corrupt bo- a boss, you should take those steps to do that. That's also a loving thing to do. The assumption in this text, however, is that you don't have that ability to correct injustice. You are in that situation. You cannot change it. But if you are in a position of authority where you can change it, you should. You should stand up against corrupt people. So we have seen what to do. We are to regard our own masters as worthy of all respect. Consider Christ as your example. Trust the Father as your judge and depend on the Holy Spirit for the power to do it. But why should you do this? And that leads us secondly to the the motive. So we've seen the command, but secondly the motive. Look at the rest of verse 1. It says, regard your own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. This will both be the result of respecting your boss. The name won't, God's name won't be blasphemed, but it also, it also is our motive. That's why we want to do this thing. We don't want God's name to be reviled. The heart of a Christian burns with holy love and zeal for the name of his God or for his father that's the bottom of all of our prayers our father who are in heaven hallowed be your name we desire God's glory even above our comfort we desire his glory above our human rights above our self-interests if we are mistreated but God's name is glorified we rejoice Just like Christ went to the cross and suffered, but yet displayed the glory of his Father in the most magnificent way. You see, if you disrespect your boss, gossip behind his back, work with a slack hand, your boss will think, these Christians, yeah, such bad workers. I, 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 I wish I never had a Christian that was working for me, right? That, that is a stumbling block over God's glory and the gospel. And on the contrary, God's name is glorified when we work hard, respect those in authority, refuse to take vengeance, and not to repay evil with evil. And then the question would be, how does this person do this? How can this Christian live like this? Which leads us to the second thing Paul mentions. It's not just that God's name is not, not reviled, but also the teaching. The teaching. That refers to the gospel the good news, the truth that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Beloved, perhaps, perhaps, it's a big perhaps, this is at the bottom of your problem. 
You care more for your own comfort than the glory of God's name. Maybe that's the issue. You care more about not being mistreated than about God's name not being maligned. We need a new heart. We need new attitudes, new taste buds to want only one thing and the glory of our Christ and our Lord and our Savior. The attitude of Paul in prison. Listen to Philippians 1. I love this example when he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Again, this does not mean that we do not cry out to God because of the injustice. But if you cannot respect your boss, then there is a problem. We need to reorient ourselves away from ourselves to Christ, the gospel, the name of our God, and a desire that all people should worship him. Paul said elsewhere, I don't know if you have ever read these words clearly, but it struck me when I read it, like Acts 20 verse 24, when he says, Paul says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. I don't know about you, but like, I don't talk like that. My life is nothing to me, doesn't matter to me. If only one thing, I can do one thing. If I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Indeed, beloved, in your suffering, Christ shines the brightest. It's when you are treated unjustly that you have the best opportunity to show the worth of Christ. Everybody can praise God when it's going well. Everybody can sing his praises when everything is going exactly according to schedule. But when, when you are mistreated, when you are mishandled, when you are being treated like rubbish, and then you glorify God, that is unique. That shows the grace of God, the value of Jesus. So seek to glorify God in both the big and the small things that you do every day of your life. I love this quote from Philip Ryken. He says, every time a Christian makes a delivery, turns in a project, hands in an expense account, makes a decision at a board meeting, pushes to get a sale, closes a deal, takes care of a patient, mops the floor, grades an exam, or decides it is time to leave work and go home, he or she is making some kind of statement about who Jesus is. See, everything you do makes a statement about who Jesus is. We work with excellence because we know we are furthering the gospel. Isn't that such an encouraging thought that when you just work hard, you are furthering the teaching, the name of God, the gospel itself. So beloved, see your work as an opportunity to become more like the one who loved you first. And this is all in the context of working with unbelieving masters. But secondly, and we'll look at this very, very briefly, we'll also consider the second attitude towards believing masters. That's against an unbelieving master. What should be our attitude towards a believing master? In verse 2, Paul goes on to say, Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. It is a sad thing that people often treat their own family members worse than a guest. 
people that they think are my family because they just have to accept me. They just have to forgive me. They just have to deal with it. Right? And that could have been a temptation for this, this slave as well, working for a Christian master. Are we not brothers? Are we not equals? Right? These Christian slaves might have been tempted to take liberties with their Christian master that they would have never taken with a secular boss. Because they believe Christians have to be gracious. Right? Yet Paul says no. It should be the opposite. You should not, you should serve, no, you shouldn't be more lazy because you're working for another Christian or another brother or sister. You should serve all the more. You, sh- you should even be more in your work because the one you're serving is a believer, is beloved. There should be a deeper devotion, deeper love, deeper commitment to that person. And it, it says they are believers, but they are also beloved. Some translations try to apply it to the slaves that they are loved by their masters, but I don't think that fits well with the text. Slaves are to think of their bosses as beloved, beloved by God. That They are loved by God. They are believers. In other words, if you struggle to love another Christian, stop and think about their identity. You know, often we think of our own identity, but we also have to meditate on our brother's and sister's identity. They are believers and loved by him. Christ died for them. That very thought has helped me as a pastor to love the difficult sheep. I know it's hard to believe, but there are some sheep that are more difficult to love than others. Otherwise, you should just be in church a little bit longer, okay? But what has helped me in those moments when I'm tempted to not love the sheep is to focus not on my comfort or how this person is is irritating me, quote unquote, but to stop and think that that very person that I'm struggling to love is the sheep of Christ, for whom he died. How could I not love that same person if even Jesus loves him or her? Listen, Christ is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Right, that's 1 Timothy 4. That is what you must do to the saved and, to the, um, and included in the family. So repent of your selfishness, your self-loving, your comfort loving. Put your trust in Christ. Remember, you are a slave of something or someone. Either you will be a slave of your passions or your desires or your sins, or you will be a slave of Christ where there is freedom and joy. And therefore, the, what Christ says, he says to all of us, and close with Matthew eleven twenty-eight. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that to obey you is impossible. It's not humanly possible to to love our enemies, to respect those who do not deserve it. Lord, not just because of their sin, but even because of our own sin, the sin in our hearts. Father, thank you that you have given us the perfect example in your son, that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he suffered silently, like a lamb led to the slaughter, 
because he entrusted his soul to a faithful creator, a faithful judge. Father, we need Christ's example, but we also need your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Father, to fill us. May we not be conformed to the world in this matter, in the way we work or the way we treat those in authority over us. But may we be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that by testing we may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Lord, may we be a light and a salt in this broken world and may many see the gospel and our love for Christ and use us, Father, and thank you, Father, for the great privilege to live for your glory and your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.